Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the May 31st edition of Macro Minutes. Uh, Since our last call two weeks ago, bond market volatility has eased back to levels witnessed before the Russia-Ukraine tensions. Bond yields in North America are well off their peak. Equities have recovered sharply, credit spreads have tightened, and the dollar has softened. So basically, um, all the trends over the last uh, two months are starting to reverse somewhat. You know, whether uh, this is a start of a new trend, a consolidation phase, or a pause before the previous trends resume, you know, is a critical question in markets at the moment. And to help us navigate these challenging times, we'll hear from our experts in rates, equities, FX, and uh, credits. Um, so to begin, there's two things that I want to talk about. The first is our mid-year outlook for Canada rates, which we published uh, last Friday, and it's called uh, Peak Rates. So we do think that the worst of the bond market uh, route is in the rearview mirror. At the second quarter, you know, should mark the peak in yields. And if yields, you know, did go back to the highs, uh, we don't think that'll be sustained. And we think the balance of risks point the yields in the belly to long end, grinding uh, modestly lower from here for a number of reasons. Uh, first, growth fears are rapidly catching up to inflation fears, and this is providing uh, more balance to the fixed income market. Second, bond stock correlations are shifting. So in days where um, equities are up, yields are not necessarily um, higher. And when equities are lower, bond yields are lower, regaining their traditional relationship with stocks in risk-off periods. And third, you know, there's been a convergence in yields um, across the yield curve. And that's both in Canada and the U.S. And this typically occurs at end of policy cycles, but it's happened uh, much earlier this time which means that the belly to long end uh, is really um, going to be determined by what happens with terminal value pricing. And I don't think that gets repriced uh, meaningfully higher from here, given that uh, growth fears are starting to uh, catch up to inflation. And finally, excessively bearish sentiment and consensus is starting to be unwound. And there's some buyers of duration and carry trade players that are coming back into the market. So based on kind of our core, you know, macro and policy views, uh, the trade ideas that we recommend on a cross-market basis, we like uh, receiving uh, Canada two-year versus paying the U.S. At the longer end, receiving Canada five-year, five-year versus paying the U.S. We like uh, six-month forward, two uh, flatteners. We like being long uh, duration, so 10-year cash. And we like real return bond 2026, 20, 2050 uh, break-even steepeners. Uh, The second topic I want to talk about is the Bank of Canada meeting this week. So the current macro landscape, whether it's growth, labor market, inflation, does support further near-term aggressive uh, tightening from the Bank of Canada to reach a neutral level as quickly as possible. So they delivered uh, 50 basis points back in April, and with price pressures still remaining acute, another 50 basis points on June 1st does seem kind of guaranteed at the moment, which is expected by us, consensus and market pricing. So any hawkish or dove surprises, that's going to uh, relate to nuances expressed in the policy statement or the economic progress report on June the 2nd. And right now, you know, the balance of risks, uh, they're probably slightly in favor of some a more hawkish outcome instead of a dovish one, given that uh, growth is pretty strong and inflation pressures uh, seem to be broadening. So after June the 1st, we do expect another 50 basis point hike in July which would bring the policy rate to the low end of the Bank of Canada's uh, neutral range estimate. 
And then we see them downshifting to 25 basis point moves in September, October, with the policy rate ending the cycle at 2.5%. And I would say the risks uh, right now to uh, rates ending uh, below or above 2.5% is finally balanced, but uh, maybe a little bit more in favor of uh, more rather than less tightening. But as we progress through the summer, if the growth slowdown becomes uh, more intense, then uh, the risk would uh, start slanting the downside. So now with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Adam on the FX market. So we've had um, you know, a bounce in uh, euro dollar. It's barely off the 20-year uh, lows. Sell-side analysts, uh, they're as bullish as they've been over the last decade. So what does the second half of the year look like, Adam? Thanks, Jason. Uh, so that's the background exactly. The seemingly strange confluence of events where euro dollar is only uh, three or four cents off the 20-year low. Yet the sell-side analyst community is incredibly bullish on the outlook and bearish uh, on the dollar on the other side of that. And um, this is not a new phenomenon, of course. For five years now, the sell-side community has been skewed very heavily to uh, a bearish dollar view and a bullish euro view. And for the majority of that period, that view has been wrong. What has changed through time is that we keep circulating through different reasoning on why the bearish dollar view holds. Uh, so for a while, it was the reemergence of the U.S. twin deficits. For a while, it was the end of U.S. exceptionalism and simple cyclical reasons. And to get an idea of what the thinking is now, we, we had a chat with a few of our buy-side clients, and it seems... The um, principal driver behind this consensus view that um, is skewed so much towards uh, bearish dollar and bullish euro is much of that is based on the idea that there is some disproportionate importance of the ECB moving through the zero bound on rates, some kind of linearity that gets a disproportionately large FX move for the move through uh, the zero bound. Um, intuitively, quite kind of uh, plausible, but statistically, it's kind of hard to find any evidence that's the case. So we've got several examples, of course, of central banks moving through the zero bound, most instructively the ECB in the other direction when it first cut rates into negative territory. And then we have the Swedish Riksbank doing the same and doing the reversal, so going from negative back to zero and positive, and several others. Um, and going back and looking at historical experience, we can find very little evidence that there is anything disproportionately important about the move through the zero band. The Technically, the beta of currency moves to interest rate differentials is stable. There, there is no evidence that uh, the beta becomes particularly large around the zero band. And for that reason, we're not convinced that the first 50 basis point move from the ECB that takes us from minus a half to zero on the depot rate is any more important than the 50 basis point move at any other point in the rate cycle. And for that reason, we still find ourselves pushing back slightly against this negative dollar, positive euro consensus. Um, the ECB normalization story, it's hard to believe it's not fully priced now. We, we have a uh, 25 basis point move discounted for the July meeting, more than 50 discounted for the September meeting. And if anything, forward rates probably overprice ECB moves. So if we take that 
alongside a view that there's nothing special about the move through zero, then we have to say that I think there is a big risk that just as many of the other um, reasons we've circulated through um, against this bearish dollar background, just as many of them have disappeared quietly as they failed to work, I think there really is a risk that that is the case again, that we've started with analysts uh, clustering around the negative dollar consensus and continuing to circulate through reasons that fit the view rather than fitting the view to the market background. And for that reason, we are, as we have been doing for most of this year, somewhat pushing it back against the very bullish euro consensus, very bearish dollar consensus, and sticking with our view that we will get a brief test of parity at some point in the second half of the year. Back to you, Jason. Okay, great. Thanks, Adam. Uh, next up is uh, Lori to shed some light on whether the recent bounce in equities uh, can be sustained. Um, so, look, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the rally we saw in the S&P 500 last week. And, you know, what we really did see was after, you know, sort of traveling down from the January highs, we hit about an 18.7% drawdown. Um, now, we put out a piece a couple weeks ago where, where that we basically called stocks at a crossroads. And I think a number of the things that we highlighted in there really help us understand why the market rallied back so fiercely last week. Um, and I would just say, first off, the market demonstrated pretty clearly that it's not ready uh, to price in a recession. Yet. And we've used the growth scare framework throughout early 2022 to describe this moment in the market that we're in. Um, basically, those are drawdowns similar to 2010, 2011, 2015, 2016, and late 2018. Those all range from 14 to 20 percent. And the 2011 and 2018 drawdowns out came in at about 19.4 and 19.8%. So with the move that we saw on the May 19th low, we came within spinning distance of those kind of 2011-2018 moves, but we're still firmly in growth scare territory. If we had priced in a full 20% drawdown, something matching the kind of late 2018 drawdown, we would have hit 38.50. And I think it's very interesting that several times in May, we've seen the S&P on an intraday basis approach that level, but it whole it held. And I think in terms of what really kind of allowed the market last week to move away from recession pricing, I do think retail earnings came in a little bit more balanced after the initial Walmart and Target numbers. Um, and we really, you know, did not see any kind of clear evidence of a breakdown in the consumer broadly last week, despite, you know, sort of problems at the low end, um, problems with execution in terms of companies that were more exposed to the low end. Um, and we also had a shift in tone from the Fed, um, which I think equity markets had really been clamoring for. The other thing that we talked about in that piece, Stocks at a Crossroads, was really that valuations had stopped being a problem. And what we saw very, very briefly in mid-May was that when you look at a trailing PE, a current year PE, and a forward PE in the market, um, all three, for the first time in quite some time, broke down below their long-term average. And what we saw in the data was that valuations were not a reason to buy the market, but they stopped being a problem. And it really did signal, I think, to many investors that it was time to start bargain hunting. And then the third thing I would just focus on in terms of why we rallied back so fiercely is that sentiment indicators on the equity side got very, very close to washed out. Um, if you look at retail, AAII net bull bears have been sort of a screaming buy for the market for the last few months. We've seen net bullishness. Uh, down in the minus 30% area, and minus 10% is usually a buy signal. And where we've been trading has really been the worst levels we've seen since financial crisis lows, and actually what we saw um, has been worse than what we saw at the lows of the pandemic. 
Now, the problem we had in equity markets is that we hadn't really seen enough of a collapse in terms of institutional investor sentiment. We really needed that to catch down. To gauge that institutional investor sentiment, we watched the weekly CFTC data and U.S. equity futures positioning among asset managers. And that really had, you know, has really, if you look at Dow and Russell 2000 contracts, has been down around great financial crisis lows. So we really do think we had seen capitulation there. And the S&P 500 contracts have gotten very, very close to past lows. They're so a little bit above 2015, 2016 lows, but have really come close uh, to most of the other lows that we've seen over the past decade or so. Um, so we do think that institutional investor sentiment has really kind of been hovering around the bottom. Um, now, I'll just wrap up uh, by talking a little bit about what we're seeing in our positioning work. One of the things I've been emphasizing to clients over the past week has been that if you look at defensive sector positioning against secular growth, so that's combining healthcare, consumer staples, and utilities against tech, communication services, and consumer discretionary, defensive sector overvaluation has basically returned to the most extreme levels we tend to see that often, uh, you know, sort of accompany major market lows in the S&P 500. So really the, you know, sort of smell test for buying defensive sectors at this point has really dissipated. The other thing we've noticed in our in our uh, positioning work has really been if you look at hedge fund filings, those 13 ups did come out, and I do think that was a big deal for the hedge fund community. Um, two things we noticed there, Staples hedge fund positioning was back to 3Q of 2016 highs when the low vol yield defensive trade peaked following the industrial earnings recession of 2015-2016, so we really think that was a good indicator that defensive positioning had gotten over its skis. And then secondly, we got a real sense of how deep the carnage has been in top hedge fund holdings. Um, if you look at the performance relative to the S&P of the most popular hedge fund stocks or the valuation levels, we're really kind of back to the 2017-2019 type range, not necessarily at the lows on the valuation side that we saw in that range, but really we do see pretty clear evidence in those charts that the pandemic froth is out of the most popular hedge fund names. And the final thought I'll give you is just from our cash equity trading desk over the weekend. Our tech traders did note at the end of last week they've started to see very small pockets of mutual fund longer duration TIMT buyers emerging. The big question here is whether or not this will be sustainable. There's essentially been a buyer strike the last few months because of poor liquidity and volatility. But it was very noteworthy that we were starting to see longer-term investors step into the tech space last week. Um, and that's it for me, Jason. I'll pass it on to the next speaker. Okay, great. Thanks, uh, Lori. Over to Adam Jones on credit. You know, spreads have tightened a little bit, uh, consistent with what we've seen in the equity market. Um, you know, can this be sustained? What's kind of the views in, in credit space? Uh, yeah, good morning. Uh, yeah, very strong week in credit. Um, I think uh, things things that jumped out to us, uh, first of all, munis were one of the stronger assets uh, overall on the week last week. There were some muni closed-end funds up, up close to 10% on the week outperforming equities, which is obviously uh, very atypical. And in many ways, the, uh, the muni turn was kind of something that led the charge in credit. Um, U.S., yeah, we saw a decent move. Um, I think we're like 20, 20 or so tied to an LQD. Um, the overall corp OAS rallied from 150 to 134. Um, I would say, though, against that backdrop, we did not see massive participation from real money. Um, the you know the, the concerns have been um, new issue. We've not. It was a very light week on the new issue side. We know there are large cash balances sat there um, in the real money community. The question is, you know, do they care to deploy them, or are they are they holding on to them in anticipation of further outflows? 
Um, new issue is basically going to be the litmus test. Uh, this week, we might not see that much of that because you've got London out Thursday and Friday, um, and so it could be a lighter week on the new issue side, which short-term could well prove to be supportive. Um, Further to that, um, you know, the other, other concerns in the background, there have been many stories about loan deals where banks have got hooked and have been trying to move them in the background. Um, we saw the Peloton uh, deal finally clear. Um, there's definitely a, um, a focus on that, and it would be nice to see some of that move. Uh, it really feels like the high-yield market is, is somewhat more tenuous than, than IG, though, and most of our trading, or most of my trading is in IG, where I think, as I said, short-term things can certainly uh, can trade a little bit better. Um, I'd also note last week we did see decent inflows into ETFs, um, which is also encouraging. You know, MUB, LQD, the high-yield ETFs, the crossover ETFs um, all had decent inflows on the week. Um, and so broadly, I'd say short-term, we feel um, reasonably optimistic, but the real test is probably going to come um, next week uh, when, when hopefully we see more on the new issue side, and we'd need to see that. Basically, you want to see the books oversubscribed and trading well on the break. Anything other than that, I think, will just reignite concerns. Okay, great. Um, thanks a lot, Adam. Uh, last up, uh, George Davis uh, to shed some light on the technical picture. Thank you, Jason. Um, so, you know, I think the overarching theme that we've been focused on uh, in the cross-asset technical space over the last couple of weeks can be defined in one word, and that's correction. And I think there's three main uh, touch points uh, to focus on there. Foremost, uh, we've generally looked at um, U.S. yields as being the so-called canary in the coal mine in that respect. And uh, last week, we did see confirmation of a head and shoulders stopping pattern when the 10-year broke below the 285 level. Now, the rally in bonds is basically stalled out uh, right around the 271 level. So that's going to serve as very important yield support going forward for the market. Uh, and on the top side, um, that neckline that uh, served the head and shoulders topping pattern basically comes in at 292 today. So the 292 level is going to serve as very important yield resistance. And so I think what we're setting up for right now is a bit of a consolidation between 270 and 3% for the time being, with more of a bias to the downside in yields, uh, just given the confirmation of that uh, topping pattern last week. Now, that has been a positive factor, I think, for U.S. equities. Uh, when we look at the S&P, the sell-off basically stalled right around 38.2% retracement of the post-COVID rally at 38.15. And more importantly, last week, the break above 39.66 triggered a bullish short-term trend reversal. And that was amplified on Friday when we closed above the most recent high at 40.91. So that basically suggests uh, we're in a shorter-term corrective phase for equities. It does open up 41.95 and the 42.25 area next on the top side. But the one thing that we've been cautioning clients is that if you look at the downtrend that we've been in since early January, the resistance trend line that basically delineates that down is in just above the 4,500 level. And so, you know, so that basically suggests we still have quite a bit of work to be done before this corrective phase has, has come to an end. And so, you know, we, we tend to look at the bounce that we're seeing right now as, as more of a bear market rally for the time being. And uh, we'll have to close above that 4,500 level uh, to confirm a change in tone in the market. And then lastly, when we look at the impact on the dollar, lower U.S. yields, a rally in equities, that's boosted risk sentiment. And so uh, we've seen some of the steam uh, taken out of the rally in the U.S. dollar. When we look at the Bloomberg dollar index, for example, the next support levels that we're watching as part of this corrective phase come in at 12.15 and 12.08. 
the broader trend is still upwards. So we would view these corrections as an opportunity to scale into some long positions at better levels. And on the top side, we're watching the 1236 level. Uh, we're going to have to see a return back above 1236 in the Bloomberg dollar index to basically neutralize the corrective phase and, and suggest that we're still over. So that's the main theme that we're going to be watching uh, over the next couple of weeks in, in terms of monitoring the markets to see if these corrections remain intact uh, or if the uh, cross-asset backdrop changes. Back to you, Jason. Okay, great. So that concludes uh, the May 31st edition of Macro Minute. You've heard from everybody about the kind of reversal and some of these trends we're seeing in markets and kind of what we're thinking going forward. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.